of you that might be here for the very first time. We consider it a great honor for you to be joining us, and we hope that something that we say today, something that is sung, something that we do, is just something that is scratches the itch that God put in you, and that will make you want to learn more and be here more, and I want to invite you to come back. Don't let your first visit be your only visit, but I want to extend a special welcome to you. We are in a series right now called COVID and the Christian, and we're going to be in First Peter chapter 5, so if you want to go ahead and open your Bibles, please go ahead. And while you're finding First Peter chapter Chapter 5. Let me just kind of remind you a little bit of what we've been through the last six months. COVID 19 has been front page news for about that long. Now, I know that COVID 19's been around a little bit longer than six months, of course, but for most of us, six months ago, back in March, is when COVID 19 kind of smacked us all in the face and turned our lives upside down. It, it was March. If you recall back in March, um, everything was shutting down fast, and many of us started working from home. Just out of a show of hands, how many of you had to start working from home in, in, when, in March? Okay, yeah, a lot of us in here. Uh, March 14th was our last in-person gathering for our church for four and a half months, and I still, that's a head-scratcher to me, that it took four and a half months, but I'm thankful, aren't you thankful, that we are gathering now, it's our fourth week back together, and it's going great, it's going fantastic. I'll tell you, every weekend, our numbers just increase and increase and increase and increase, and we're expecting that again. We had to add another service, which is fantastic. Starting in September, like Taylor said, we're going to start introducing back pieces of our children's ministry. We believe it's going to make a huge difference. But it was four and a half months that we were, we were just online only. Uh, by the third week in March, many of our schools, if not all of them, had gone to online learning. Us as parents had to figure out how we are going to be, you know, full-time employees and homeschool teachers and, and everything else. By that third week, most major sports, college, and professional had suspended their seasons. And how many of you remember, you couldn't buy toilet paper to save your life? And, and good luck finding some hand sanitizer. Now, be honest, how many of you are still working off your supply of toilet paper you bought back in March? All right, all the honest people, the rest of you, you know you're lying. You've got huge warehouses full of toilet paper. Friend of mine on Facebook the other day posted this confession. He said, I drastically underestimated how much one person needs in toilet paper. That's for sure. He's still working off his supply. Grocery stores were lean. Do you remember that? And still, some ways they still are lean. I remember going out to try to find ground beef one night a few months ago. I couldn't find it. Went to three different stores. Told my wife, it looks like it's a vegetarian meal tonight. There's no ground beef anywhere. Everyone was staying indoors and they were wondering, and maybe you wonder this too, what in the world are we gonna do with all this extra time? We can't go anywhere, everything is closed. How are we gonna fill up all this time? We're gonna be bored. And then March 20th happened and millions and millions and millions of Americans had their answer to what they were going to do to fill up their time during this, this uh, staying at home season. Does anybody have any idea what I might be referring to that happened on March 20th? You see, on March 20th, Netflix released a documentary called Tiger King. <laughs> and overnight, right here in the middle of this pandemic, our nation had something else to talk about. Now, now just rest assured, I'm not going to ask any of you to raise your hand if you have seen the Tiger King. I'm not going to put you on the spot like that. And no way am I, by just mentioning this documentary, am I giving it an endorsement or a recommendation that you should go see it? Because trust me, I'm not. 
All I'm going to say is that I had no idea that on our planet there were scenarios and circumstances that could provide the content necessary for a documentary like Tiger King. And those of you who are laughing, you're the ones that just admitted you'd seen it. All right, I get it. No, no but I'm not endorsing it on. I certainly not recommend that you go watch it. You know, I bring it up though, because I think there has been for a very long time, a fascination in our world with people about lions and tigers. Would you agree with that? There's been a great fascination. Long before that documentary series, The Tiger King, people have been fascinated with these animals. I think especially, especially with the lion. Lions have always been probably one of the most major attractions at any zoo. You take your kids to the zoo, what do they want to see? We want to see the lions. At least that's what it is with, with our kids. People are captivated. Go to any zoo and don't watch the lions. Watch the people who are watching the lions. And what you're going to see is eyes wide open, mouths open, cameras, videos. They're, we're fascinated by lions. And honestly, for a lot of people, the closer you can get to them, the more exciting it is. And I don't know what it is about being in such close proximity to a dangerous animal, but people seem to love it. The, the lion is called the king of the jungle for a reason. We all know this, right? It has earned the reputation for its ability to hunt and stalk and pursue and pounce and destroy and kill and eat just about anything that it wants. No matter how you look at it, lions are extremely dangerous animals. I wonder, why is it? Why are we so drawn to dangerous things? Do you know why? Um, it's a hypothetical. I, I wonder about it. Well, why do we sometimes want to be so close to dangerous things? This fascination with lions is not a modern trend. It's not like something our generation has become all of a sudden fascinated with. No, no, no. For thousands of years, people have been captivated by lions. I wouldn't be surprised if even going back to the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve would just watch the lions and they would say things like, whoa, would you look at that? That's more fascinating than the raccoons, I'll tell you that. There's this cave in southern France called Chevette Pont d'Arc. And this cave, you probably never heard of it because it wasn't discovered all that long ago. It was discovered back in 1994. And many people believe that this cave in southern France contains the oldest cave paintings and cave art anywhere in the world. Now there's, you know, how old are they? Well, there's an ongoing discussion among the expert, experts about just how old these cave paintings and cave art is. But they all agree that they are thousands of years old. And besides the cave art that they found in these caves, they found other interesting things like bones and artifacts, including what they believe to be the oldest preserved human footprint anywhere in the world. That's what they think this cave holds. Now, the theory from the experts is that a mudslide covered the entrance of this cave shortly after that footprint had been made all those years ago. However, however long ago that was, a mudslide covered the entrance of the cave and it made it completely inaccessible and undisturbed for all these years, absolutely forgotten to any other civilizations and it preserved for all these years, all these drawings and these paintings inside this cave. There have been... They have been able to explore this cave. It's not available. It's not open to the public. It's completely cut off from public. We're not allowed, nobody's allowed to go in there. 
But the experts have been able to catalog many species of animals that were drawn on the cave walls, even animals that are now extinct, like, uh, like woolly rhinoceros and woolly mammoth are on the walls of this cave. And my understanding as, as they explored this cave, and you know, I don't know a whole lot about it, but my understanding is as they went deeper and deeper into the cave, they got to the very end and it opened up to what they are referring to as the gallery of lions. Obviously, they were fascinated with the lions, which says to me that no matter how old these are, and how long they've been here, there has been a fascination with this animal for a long, long time. I would say ever since God created them. Even scripture contains some amazing accounts of lions. Of course, many of us are familiar with, of course, Daniel and the lion's den, right? We know that David tore apart a lion with his bare hands. Can you believe what it took to tear apart a lion with your bare hands? It happened. There's a story of a man in the Bible named Benaiah who chased a lion into a pit on a snowy day and killed the lion. Why are these incidents with lions so fascinating, so incredible to us today? It's because the lions were supposed to win. The lions were supposed to win. I mean, let's face it, Daniel was not thrown into a den of baby kittens, was he? No, he was thrown into a den of lions so that they would tear him apart and eat him. That's why they were there to begin with. Lions have a ferocious nature as well as the ability to sneak up on its prey, pounce on them and kill them before they even knew they were in danger. These animals have been striking fear in people for thousands of years, so... It really shouldn't surprise us, should it, that Peter, when he's trying to warn the church of how dangerous the devil is, he compares the devil to a ferocious lion. Now, if you got your Bibles, look at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, and I want to show you what Peter wrote to the church. This is what he said. He said, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now just let that hang for a moment. I actually have a picture of a very ferocious lion. It should be up there in a minute. But just let those words hang for a minute. Your devil, or your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for somebody to devour. You see, this is the image right here that I believe best captures the nature of our enemy. Now, not this picture right here. Let me show you another picture. Not this one. When Peter wrote to warn the church, he's not trying to get them to picture some guy, a creepy-looking guy with a creepy smile with horns on his head holding some pitchfork. No, this image, this impression of the devil comes from our own imaginations. This picture of the devil, I'll be honest with you right here behind me, it doesn't stir any emotions in me. It doesn't make me nervous. It doesn't make me concerned or even cautious because the image of this devil right here is not what Peter's describing. No, 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 no. Peter is describing the lion. 
The devil is this ferocious lion-like figure looking to sneak up on you and he's looking to catch you off guard and to overpower you and to take you out. Straight up, friends, there is no other way to understand Peter's warning. The devil is out to get the church. The devil is out to get you. Now, last week I asked you if you believed Peter when he said the end of all things is near. Remember me asking that question? And I asked you, do do you believe him? And I threw out to my opinion that I think a lot of Christians believe that without any hesitation, but we're very nonchalant about it. We don't think about it very much. We don't think about the end. We don't think about the return of Christ very much. Sure, we believe it, but we sure sometimes don't act like it. Let me ask you another question as it relates to our text tonight. Do you believe Peter when he says that our enemy, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour? Do you believe him? Do you think about it very often? Is it something that is always present and nearby when you think about what the Lord is doing in your life. Let me ask you another question. Has the coronavirus and everything else going on in our country right now in these last six months, has it made you think a little bit more about the devil than you used to? You know, we're concluding our series today called COVID and the Christian. And we've been trying to answer this question very biblically. The question is, how should Christians be living out their faith during this historic moment in history? And the book of 1 Peter, as you know, has been our guide to answering this question. The teachings that Peter gave to the first century Christians who were going through a really rough season in their lives, well, that teaching is just as applicable to us today as we too are experiencing our own troubles in this world. The teaching's very relevant and applicable. And something that comes out very clear in our text is that Peter seems to understand and know and communicate that the devil is an opportunist. Did you know that? The devil's an opportunist, just just like the lion is. The Christians of the first century, they were experiencing such difficulty and hardships, and Peter knew this about the devil, that it was a ripe environment for the devil to do what he does. It's no different for us. I believe that the coronavirus and all that we have been through these last six months has created an opportunity for the devil to do what he seems to do best. Now, I don't know how you feel about this, but I don't think every Christian in the world has been at their best lately. Worry and despair has crept into many lives these past few months. And so has aggravation disgust, and far-reaching negativity. Gossip and slander with a good dose of accusations and judgmentalism have created a ripe environment for the devil to sneak up and catch some Christians off guard. It's because the devil is an opportunist. He wants to catch you at your weakest moment. And sometimes, if not all the time, our weaker moments are when we are frustrated and when we are angry and perhaps when we are tired or maybe in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong people. See, see, these are all opportunities that the devil and his cohorts drool over. Let me give you an example. 
In Matthew chapter four, we read this very famous moment in Jesus's life. He's just been baptized, and this is where the Lord sent down his spirit on Jesus like a dove, and he said, this is my son, whom I love, and I'm well pleased that Jesus came up out of the water. Are you with me in that moment in the Bible? And then in Matthew four, it says Jesus heads off into the wilderness and he would be in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights and God was, full, you know, Jesus was fully God and fully man and, and so he experienced everything that we as mere humans experience and, and it says that Jesus didn't eat, he fasted for those 40 days. And it was then when Jesus was tired and no doubt famished and weak, that is when the devil showed up to tempt Jesus. Why did the devil show up when Jesus was tired, famished, and weak? It's because he is an opportunist, and he felt his chances were better with Jesus, famished, weak, and tired than if he had been rested, well-fed, and strong. And of course, if you know what happened next, it's powerful piece of scripture. The devil was absolutely unsuccessful. He came at Jesus three different times. Three different times, Jesus defeated him with the word of God and he commanded him to flee and he had to leave. You know, we also learned in our Revelation series a few weeks back that the devil, who is an opportunist, always has his end game in mind. And what exactly is that end game? Let me remind you of it tonight. Revelation 12, nine, the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, Or Satan, who does what? Who leads the whole world astray. It's no secret. The devil has an end game. And and this end game is based on what? The fact that he hates God. And he hates you for joining God's family. So his overall goal is to defeat God's plan to rescue the world And he will do so by any means possible. And I don't think, please don't think for a second that the coronavirus hasn't been the devil's playground. How does he do it? Well, let me give you a few examples in scripture. Some of these will be familiar to you. Some of them may not be. I'll rattle them off quickly. You can always go back and find everything that I'm putting here um, in the app and you can see the sermon notes later. If you don't write all these down, it's fine. But how does Satan initiate his agenda. Well, the Bible says this, Satan is a liar and deceiver, says this in scripture multiple places. So we know that about him. He disguises himself as an angel of light in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He will often present himself as something good and attractive and desirable. If he didn't, why would anybody want him? He blinds the minds of unbelieving, it says in 2 Corinthians 4. His strategy is dependent upon evil schemes and snares. He wants to trip you up. That's one of his strategies. He wants to trap you. We are constantly bombarded today by deceitful spirits and doctrines from demons. That's what it says in 1 Timothy 4.1. He works through false prophets. False prophets is what many of the New Testament letters were all about, addressing false prophets in the church. And we'd be foolish to think that false prophets aren't around today either. He works through them. Satan is the source of all false religions in the world, and he's behind all idolatry. Satan can empower people and demons to work miracles and deceive people. The list right here that I'm giving you, this is all straight from the Bible, and it perhaps sounds even scary, but let me just remind you of something very important today. 
that Satan is powerful, but he's not all powerful. Satan knows a lot, but he doesn't know everything. Here's something I do know. Satan has already lost. Satan's fate is already sealed. He's headed for the lake of fire one day and he knows it. It's just a matter of time until God puts a stop to his schemes. He was defeated through Jesus Christ. And it says so, 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 just says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. So I, I rest assured, and I hope you do too, that Satan's ultimate doom is determined. He will lose, we will be vindicated, but in the meantime, he will stop at nothing to try to lead the whole world astray. So Peter challenges the world, the church in the world, to do what? To be alert, to be ready, to understand your enemy. And then if you look at verse nine, what does he say next? Resist him Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Even though, friends, he is ferocious, we are to resist him. We are to stand apart. We are to push back. That's what this whole idea of resist means. I'm not with you. Don't come any closer. No, I'm going to resist you. How do we resist the devil? Well, friends, that's captured all throughout the pages of the Bible. But Peter tells us something. Let's back up just a little bit. Let's expand what Peter is writing to the church. If you could, go back to verse five. You got your Bibles there? We're gonna back out just a little bit. We're gonna zoom out on the text and look at a little bit more. If you go back a couple verses, look at verse five, the second part, what does Peter tell the church to do? He says, all of you clothe yourself with humility towards one another. Why? Because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourself, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And then he says, be alert in the sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him standing firm in the faith. Now, friends, I could take you to many places in the Bible today that teaches us all about the devil's schemes and how to resist him and how to defeat him. But what I want us to focus our time today is the one tactic that Peter brings up in his text. There's one thing that Peter seems to zoom in and lock in on for the church. This is what he tells them. He says, listen, resist him, but what do you say right before that? Clothe yourself in humility. And that's not something that we think a lot about, is it, when we're talking about fighting back and resisting the, the devil. But Peter says, listen, church, clothe yourself in humility. And I find that really interesting, that humility has something to do with resisting the devil. Well, let's, let's, let's define it quickly. What is humility? Have you ever tried to really define the word humility? I find it's easier to talk about what humility isn't to help me define what it is. What's the opposite of humility? Well, it's pride. Pride's the opposite of humility. What does pride say? Pride says, I'm better than you. I'm more important than you. Look how great I am. No one is better than me. That's pride. But humility does what instead? Humility considers others more important. Humility says you 
before me. Where pride would say, love myself, humility would say, love my neighbor. Pride would say, do for myself, but humility would say what? Do for others. And Peter's like, take this understanding of humility and I want you to clothe yourself in it because humility is actually a great defense against the devil. It's how you resist him. And here's why humility is in your defensive arsenal against the devil. It's because when you are humble, it's like God's character stamped right on your heart. Humility is part of God's character that he overlays on you. And I'm telling you, when you, when the devil comes up against God's character stamped on your heart, that's an awfully thick wall that he has to get through to get to you. Now, I wanna take you to Psalm chapter 113. You don't need to turn there. It'll be on the screen behind me. But Psalm 113, five through six tells us something very telling about God's character and humility. It says, who is like the Lord our God, the one who sits enthroned on high, who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth. That word stoops is the same idea as becomes low. It's the same family of thinking as humility. It's another way of describing God's character where, where the psalmist is saying God is high and God is great and there's no one higher and there's no one greater and we sing songs about this truth all the time. And this is a God who sits on his throne because there's nobody higher than him. Yet, he humbles himself, he pays attention, and he loves the things that he has created, and that would be you and me. He loves the things that he created so much that he would even take the most humblest of approaches and die for the things that are lowly. That's humility, and when aspects of God's character, his humility, are stamped on you, Satan can't break that. And it identifies you as Satan's complete opposite. There is nothing humble about the devil. Do you realize this? There is not one thing that's humble about him. In fact, it was pride that got him on the outs with God. And Isaiah chapter 14 verse 12 tells us about this very truth. Just listen to what the prophet says. How have you fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn? You have been cast down to the earth. You who once laid low the nations, you said in your heart, this is the devil here, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the Mount of Assembly and on the utmost heights of Mount Zephon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. Listen, friends, there is nothing humble about the devil. And it's what got him on the outs with God. And so when you stamp humility and clothe yourself in the very character of God, it puts you in a position of opposition to everything that the devil is all about. And this is just my opinion here. But pride says this about the coronavirus. I know everything there is to know about COVID-19. Everyone else is wrong. I know best. And if you think differently, then you're an idiot. That's pride. That's pride. But humility says this. I don't know everything there is to know about COVID-19. 
I'll do my best to learn everything that I can find out about it, but I will make it a matter of prayer and base my decisions on where I sense God's will is and where he is leading my life. That's humility. Pride says this. You see things different? We can't be friends. In fact, you're probably not even a Christian because anyone with a different point of view than me is wrong. But humility says, no, we don't see eye to eye, but I still love you as a brother or sister in Christ. Our agreement or disagreement on the issues of the day won't stop me from aggressively loving you like Jesus loves you. When Peter tells the church to wrap yourself up or clothe yourself in humility, he is telling the church to wrap up in and put on the very character of God himself. And it's like an armor that not even the sharpest teeth of the devil can penetrate. Now, I could point you to numerous places in the Bible, as I said, about defeating the devil. I could take you to probably the most popular one in the entire Bible, which is Ephesians 6, where Paul says to the church, what? Put on the full armor of God. Why? So that you can stand your ground against the devil's schemes. Friends, we should pay very close attention to what Paul writes to the church in Ephesians 6. But here, in the middle of Extremely difficult days is the church that Peter is writing to, and he talks about humility in the fight against the devil. If I could sum up maybe what Peter is teaching the church into a singular thought, and that's what I've been trying to do with this series, I would say that the truth is this. Humility before God and toward others is the best offensive and defensive game plan in resisting the devil. According to Peter, humility is that. Now here's how it's the best offensive game plan. Here's how humility can be offensive. It's because when you're trying to move forward in life with a humble heart before God and others, that is always right in God's eyes. When I'm aggressively pursuing in my life to be wrapped up in God's character with humility, that is always right in God's eyes. It's what he desires for you. It helps you have the kind of love, trust, submission, and harmony that Peter writes about all throughout his letter. And that's why humility is the best offensive game plan. And here's why humility is also the best defensive game plan. It's because humility puts you in a position of trusting God and that helps you defeat the devil. Because the devil is out to destroy your faith. He's out to lead the whole world astray and he's very aggressive with it. But humility says this, God, I trust you more than anything else. I'm submissive to you first, your desires, your will for my life. And I know, God, that you are more powerful than my enemy and I need your strength to defend myself against him. And that's why it's an incredible defensive game plan. Friends, I want you to know today you have everything that you need to win, to resist this enemy. And I don't want you ever to forget that. I want to end this message, this whole series, with the same words that Peter did when he said in 1 Peter 5, 14, he said, peace to all of you who are in Christ. Peace. Because that is what we can have even in the most difficult of days when we put into practice the teaching of God's word and I pray and hope 
that that has been the case for us. Before we go today, I want to bring your attention to something that's on all of our minds, and I know that uh, it's something we think a lot about. Monday morning, our kids go back off to school. You know that, right? And it feels weird, doesn't it? I mean, there's that part of every parent that's like, thank you, Jesus. (laughs) And then there's a part of us that are like, Lord, am I doing the right thing? And then between those two big thoughts are thousands of teachers and educators and administrators who will be on the front lines of all of this. And friends, that job is hard enough without the coronavirus. So what I want us to do here for a few minutes before we say goodbye is I would like to ask you, if you are a teacher or an administrator or work in a school in any capacity whatsoever, in any learning environment, in any type of education, and you are now playing by a whole new set of rules, would you maybe raise your hand so that we can kind of eyes on you and just pray for you? Is anybody, we got some back here, back here. It doesn't matter what role, you're heading back to the schools on Monday. All right, do you guys see these hands up? Could you guys just find the hand closest to you and just kind of, you know, we're not gonna touch, okay? And we're still gonna social distance. Now, in the past, we've laid hands. We're, that's right, we're gonna lay hands on you and send you back to school with a little COVID danger. But um, no, I'm kidding, we're not gonna do that. I'm totally joking, I'm totally joking. Probably not the right time. (laughs) My timing's never been awesome, just to let you know. But you see the hands. We had some back here, here. Would you just kind of, in your own way, maybe turn and shift and gesture? Maybe, maybe raise your hand. And can I lead us in a prayer? And I'd like to invite all of you to just join together and let's pray, all right? Let's pray together. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, I just wanna pray together with our church family over those educators, administrators, faculty, staff, and anyone going back to school in any capacity that, Lord God, your blessing just go with them. That, that Lord, you would give them the right words to say every day, the right response every time. That, Lord, the words that comes out of their mouths would only be those that bring glory to you. And, Lord, in those difficult situations with difficult parents and difficult students and difficult situations, Lord, I just pray that you would let your presence be known And that, God, this school year, we will see you move and do amazing things among the student bodies and among the faculties and staff of our schools. Lord, I pray that you use the coronavirus situation that we're in to bring more and more people into a saving relationship with you. Lord, I also pray for our students, our kids who are going back to school. Lord, I pray that you supernaturally protect them. That, Lord, the fears of shutting down schools will quickly go away. That, Lord, I've been praying all the time that you would just kill this virus. And that, Lord, it will not impede the education of our students. And it will not be a disruptive force any longer in our families. But, Lord, I pray that you just put a hedge of protection around every single student going back to school. And, Lord, I just pray this will not be an opportunity for the enemy to do what he does. Lord, I pray we resist him. Lord, we know this is in many ways a spiritual battle as much as it is a virus battle. So Lord, this is our prayer and we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, King of Kings.
the Lord of Lords.